0: Welcome to the Chapel Online. At the Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Well, good morning, everybody. Like Tori said, we're continuing our series through the book of Psalms. And I do want to say I lied to you last week. Um, I said we're going to be through with lament um, and hardship and all that and move into praise. But I was a week too quick. I think I was so excited to be done with darkness and depression and frustration and all that, but that will be next week. We'll dive into praise, um, but today we're going to continue in the part of lament, but before we get there, I want to just celebrate Vacation Bible School. It was an awesome week with lots of kids. I told James, our kids' ministers, probably the most docile kind of like laid-back group I've ever seen. don't know if we dripped Benadryl on them on the way in. I'm not sure what happened, but they were well-behaved. They really broke nothing, and they made less of a mess in here than I did the first week. So really really thankful for the kids to come up but also thankful for all the volunteers um just what y'all did was amazing um it was just awesome and if you were a parent and you dropped your kid off and didn't volunteer we got your name for next year so you're ready to come back and be a part of that it was just awesome and also if you saw the picture of the little girl praying um she was praying i I met her grandpa after the service um after our first service he said yeah she's probably praying for me praying for Grampy. And I was like, well, no matter what she was praying, girl was praying. And I was thinking, man, that could just be the sermon, pray like her and everything's going to be okay. But it was just super, super exciting. A great week to see God do amazing things. But today we're going to continue in the book of Psalms, especially with lament. If you don't know what that means, it's really, how do we cry out to God? Honestly, how do we let him know where we are, what we're feeling, what we're driving through, and how does that shape how we begin to see him and understand what we're going through in life? And we're going to do that today. Is we're going to talk about caves. Um, I was kind of I grew up in Louisiana, so we really didn't have any caves to explore. If there was a hole in the ground, you stayed out of it because there's probably something bigger than you in it. Um, so you tend to avoid it. But there's something just exciting and really intriguing about caves. One, I love the word spelunking. This thing is really cool, and I kind of wanted to be a spelunker growing up. Um, there's something really just exciting about a cave, but also it's extremely dangerous. I mean, it's dark, there's some dangerous things in there. It's easy to get lost. There's also all kinds of crazy creatures like toddlers and mother-in-laws and people selling you car warranties and all kinds of different things in there that could get you in trouble. But also, it's really, there can be some gross things in there too. I got this picture off the BBC website. Um, that is a pile of bat poop, guano, to make politically correct. It's over 300 feet in width. And that is... Roaches! That's that's roaches on top of that thing. So it's absolutely disgusting. So even though caves can be exciting, caves aren't exactly where you want to spend an extended amount of time. Well, what we're going to notice today in our story of King David, and we've been kind of walking through David's life um, in the book of Psalms. Psalms is really mostly his diary or his journal, what he's going through, is he is actually going to be in a cave, an actual physical cave. Now, this is not just something that he didn't want to do. This was not a place David expected himself to be, because at an early age, when he was a teenager, David was actually anointed as king of Israel. Now, he was anointed at an early age, but he didn't actually have it realized until much, much later. And as he was growing up and everything, we we know the story of David. If you grew up in Church of Don, we'll kind of give you a heads up. This is the same David That killed Goliath. So this big, huge arch enemy of Israel came in threatening to kill people. And David said, I'm a little teenage boy. I'll take him. If I can take bears and lions, I can take this dude. And he kills Goliath with a slingshot and Goliath's own sword. So people really looked up to David. They thought he was a really, really cool kid. Even the king at the current time, a guy named Saul, really liked David. That He would have him come in and play his harp, play his lyre to calm King Saul down to kind to of make him feel like, you know, everything's going to be OK. Until King Saul realized how much people liked David, and he began to kind of feel threatened. He began to feel, you know what, this ain't going to be good. So King Saul actually wanted to put David to death. And David spent years, decades of his life running from King Saul, who was holding the office of king which David was supposed to already be. And to make it even more dramatic, you know, like TNT, we know drama. If you think the the Bible's boring, you should read it. Um, David's best friend, Jonathan, was actually King Saul's son. And King Saul's son is what kept his best friend from being killed from his own dad. Just lots and lots and lots of drama. And David would actually one day try to escape to the land of the Philistines, which is where Goliath Came from the guy he killed. He said, You know what? The enemy of my enemy might be my friend until they realized who David was. And it was like, David, King Saul's killed hundreds. You've killed tens of thousands of our people, so we don't want you here. And instead of being put to death, David acted like he was crazy. He acted like a middle schooler on too much sugar, so they would actually let him go. And that's where he finds himself in this cave. But what we're going to see when it comes to the cave of David is even though he eventually would run into the palace, eventually become king over all of Israel, his greatest relationship with the Lord, his greatest desperation understanding who God was happened here. Because once he got to the palace, he allowed the comforts of life to kind of distract him from God's goodness and his desperate need for the Lord. And actually it's in the palace that he would have his biggest sinful moments to where he would sleep with a lady who wasn't his wife and actually have her husband, his best friend, put to death. But what we see is when he's he's in this cave, he not only cries out to the Lord, but he understands who God is. And I don't know where you are today. I'm not sure what your cave might be, whether it's a sickness, whether it's a worry, whether it's an experience, whether it's a pain, or maybe you just feel like you're in a rut. Maybe you just feel like you're in this mental brain fog for the past decade and you have no idea what's Next, I want us to understand, guys, God not only has a purpose in our wilderness, He only has a purpose in our cave, but He actually is in it with us. And the cave is really, I just kind of hinted at the word, it's a form of wilderness that we see in Scripture. And God uses these wilderness moments for a very specific purpose. And that wilderness is used for preparation. It's used for preparation. We see this in three different ways throughout Scripture. One, God uses it to prepare us kind of for the promised land, but he does it in a way of correction. So there was a guy in the Old Testament called Moses, you know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh baby, let my people go. Well, he drove the the people of Israel out of Egypt. They were enslaved and he was taking them to the promised land until they started misbehaving, until they started being really, really bad kids. And God said, you know what? We're going to wait a while. So for 40 years, they were in the wilderness. They were in their own metaphorical cave. God was correcting them in order to prepare them For the place that he had for them. But we don't just see it as a form of correction, we also see it as a form of temptation. Jesus, as he was being prepared for his ministry, prepared for the cross, he didn't go for 40 years in the wilderness, he went for 40 days. And he was out there being tempted by the enemy, tempted to put his ways above God's ways, tempted to take a shortcut, but eventually was preparing him for the cross. And what we're gonna see with David is not a preparation through correction or a preparation through temptation. It's a preparation through desperation, that he's going to understand how desperately he needs God so that whenever he's out of the cave, he's out of the guano, he's out of the bad poop, and he's in the palace, people waiting on him hand and feet, he will remember who God is and how desperately he needs him. And I hope you understand your cave that you are potentially in right now is a time of preparation. It could be for correction. It could be for temptation. I'm not sure. But it could also be for desperation for you to see how desperately you need god and of the way charles spurgeon put it this way a great preacher um, back a few decades ago a few centuries ago he would say it this way the caves have heard the best prayers because when we're in the darkness when we're in the pain when we're in the worry we're in the fear we begin to truly and honestly cry out to god and that's what we're going to see today because psalm 142 is a pretty dang good prayer coming from a cave and we're going to see david cry out two things one is just going to cry out to the lord in general like lord Life is terrible, which is pretty open and honest. But he's not just going to cry out. He's actually going to praise God for the situation that he's in. And if I'm going to be honest with you, I would definitely pray and cry out like David did. But there's no way I'd be praising God. I'm like, Lord, I'm supposed to be king. And the king that is still king that doesn't allow me to be king is now trying to kill me so he can remain king. I'm like, God, are you kidding me? I'm running from a madman. What are you doing? Is your promise still real? But David in turn says, no, Lord, I'm going to trust you no matter what. And he begins to praise. So that's where we pick up in Psalm chapter 142. And you're going to see, we're going to jump to verse three first. We're coming back to one and two, so don't get worried. Um, this is a poetic kind of poem type thing of David crying out to God. So we're going to see the problem first, and then we'll come back to verses one and two for his prayer. It says, when my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my, my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. There is no one concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I think many of us have said these two or three little words there. No one cares many, many times. So the first thing we see is David Kraut with this problem. And what is his problem? He feels weak, he feels trapped, and he feels all alone. He feels weak. He feels trapped and he feels all no. You might feel all three. You might feel one of three. You might think you don't feel any of the three. Well, regardless, you need to take good notes from David because at some point in time, probably tomorrow, you're gonna to end up being here as well. So what do we mean by weak, trapped, and alone? Now was David physically weak, physically exhausted? absolutely dude has been running for his life for the past few years and now he's living in a cave where there is no light there's no darkness there's no good food and he's living there all alone he is physically and utterly exhausted but also he's mentally emotionally and spiritually exhausted he has his best friend's dad trying to put him to death he had this idea of i'm gonna become king and people are gonna be feeding me fried chicken it's gonna be great and now he's hiding in a cave he is absolutely weak and exhausted he is worn out and this is where i want to speak to to the men in the room and ladies don't check out fully and don't use this as a weapon against your husband but guys we we have a problem with this word don't we yeah we have a problem with the word weak. none of us want to stand up in front of people like i am weak like that's not something we embrace as men as men we want to be strong we want to we want to bow up we want to take care of things that we have to understand Admitting that we are weak, admitting that we need help is actually a sign of strength. We can take a cue from kids. We can take a cue from ladies being willing to say, I need help. I understand that I'm finite. I understand that I need help. But as men, for some reason, we're absolutely terrified of asking for help. Guys, I just want you to think, when is the last time we didn't have a GPS that you'd be willing to stop and ask for directions? Like, like I would be willing to be lost and dead inside, on the side of the road in a ditch rather than ask for help. Am I right? Ladies, don't be up on your husband. We know, we, we know it's true, right? Like We do not want to admit that we have shortcomings. We don't want to admit that we're weak. But the problem is when we try to bow up, when we try to man up, when we try to buck up, not only do we cause more damage in our own life, we become damaging to those around us. When we're not willing to admit that we are weak and need help, we end up hurting those closest to us. Admitting that we're weak can potentially be a sign of strength. I was listening to a podcast this week by a former commander um, in the Navy. He was actually a part of a SEAL team that one of my best friends served on a few years ago. And he was drawing out what it means to be strong, what it means to be a man. He said there were three things. Number one, admitting that you're wrong. Which guys we're not good at. I tell all couples I do premarital counseling with, um, memorize this little phrase and you'll save your marriage for decades. I'm sorry, please forgive me. I love you. Do that, you'll stay married for decades. That it just it's that simple. Submit so that you're wrong. Two. Ask for help. What makes a real man being willing to ask for help, and then lastly, then move forward, move forward with that help. And when we look at David, King David. One of the manliest guys we see in Scripture do would kill bears and lions with his hands and then be able to play the harp and seduce his many wives, which is not manly at all. But he was able to do all these things like manly, manly man. But what could he do? He could admit when he fell short. He could admit when he needed help. Guys, you want to truly be strong? Admit where you fall short and admit that you need help. And there's some of you right now who are battling with things that you never thought you'd walk into, but you need help. You need help. And when you don't realize you need help, not only are you damaged, but like I said, are you damage those around you. So we have to admit at times that we're weak. And it's a problem, but we are. The next part is trapped. And this isn't just that he's trapped in a cave and can't get out. It's not just that they're setting up traps, which people were trying to catch him and get him and take him back to Saul. It also, this is a feeling of imprisonment. We'll see this in verse 7, that he feels like he's in this prison. And this is so much beyond just being physically trapped in a cave. He feels trapped by life. He feels trapped by a circumstance, which I think many of us might feel right now. Some of you might feel trapped in a relationship. You might feel trapped in your marriage of, yeah, this isn't the same person I married a decade or multiple decades ago. I feel like I'm trapped in this relationship. And it's not just, is is your relationship dangerous? Because if your relationship is dangerous, you need to tell somebody. Like, you do need to get help there. But you might feel like you're trapped. Or maybe you feel like you're trapped in a job. Maybe you feel like you're trapped in a job. You hate what you do. You you don't hate the people you do it with, because that would not be like Jesus. But you dislike the people strongly that you do it with. But you need the benefits. You need the salary. Your family has to have. That income, you feel like you're trapped. Or maybe you're trapped in your own head. Maybe you're trapped in your own insecurities. You know you're not enough. You know you can never get out. You know you'll never measure up. Or maybe you're trapped in sin. You're trapped in addiction. You're where you never thought you would be and you can't. You feel like you can't ask for help. Because if you did, you might lose your spouse. You might lose your family. You might lose your standing. You feel like you might even lose your faith. You feel trapped and all alone, And the problem is, whenever something feels trapped, there's something within us that grows, and it's called fear. And when fear begins to rise, we get dangerous. I always heard growing up the old saying of, you don't fear a mad dog, you fear a scared dog. And guys, whenever we begin to be filled with fear and feel trapped, we begin to become dangerous to those around us. David is weak, and he's trapped. But also... He's all alone. We see the story that parallels with his journal entry here in 1 Samuel chapter 22. And eventually, 400 people show up to be in this cave with him, which I think is pretty cool until you realize these 400 people, um, they're actually really big misfits. They're broken themselves, and they're not coming to support David. They're coming to get something from him. So whether he's writing this before they show up or even after they show up, he is completely and fully all alone. Even the people there are depending upon him. This might be exactly how you feel today. You're isolated, no one cares. You're isolated, no one's there to help. Or maybe there are tons of people around you, but they all need something from you. And once you get to the point of being all alone, you feel like you're absolutely hopeless. The cave gets darker, the cave gets smaller, the cave gets more dangerous. That is where David finds himself. The man after God's own heart feeling all three now you might feel all three you might feel just one you might feel a combination of all of the above but i want you to see what david's response is and that's in verses one and verse two he says i cry out to aloud to the lord i lift my voice to the lord of mercy i pour out before him my complaint before him i tell my trouble and this is verse six listen to my cry for i'm in desperate need rescue me from those who pursue me for they are too strong for me What does he do? He prays. He begins to cry out. And this is the prayer. The prayer is this. He cries out for mercy and he also cries out for rescue. He cries out for mercy and he cries out for rescue. And one, I want you to see how personal that cry out is. But also he believes the Lord hears him. No matter how dark, no matter how deep, no matter how far away the cave feels, our God will hear our prayer. That's what David wants us to see. He wants us to see that we can cry out to God at any point in time. And I want you to see how raw it is. How raw were David's words? He's like, dude, this is terrible. Do something about this. I want you to understand, guys, God can handle our emotions. He can handle everything we have being thrown at Him, but I want you to see how David does it. He vents fully to God. He vents his full anger to God, but he doesn't vent his full anger on God. He doesn't vent his full anger about God. He still has this reverence, He still has this understanding of God's holiness. He still realizes, I am but a man, you are God. So can God handle our emotions? Yes, but we still do it in a way to recognize who he is and who we are in that turn. So is it okay to be mad about things that happen in life? Absolutely, but we still got to recognize who God is. Look what he prays for. He prays for mercy. He prays to not get what he actually deserves. This would be like driving through Livonia on 190 and getting pulled over for speeding. What do you do? Please, sir, don't give me a ticket. My toddler pooped and it stinks really bad. Like, you're going to do whatever you can to not get what you deserve. David is saying, Lord, I know I deserve death. I know I deserve judgment. I know I deserve what's coming my way, but you are good. Please don't give me what I deserve. And before he even asked for rescue, he recognized that he is a broken, sinful man, and God owes him nothing. So he sets it right. And then he asks for rescue. And he says, Lord, come deliver me. Do something about this. And I want you to get, guys, he, he isn't asking God to rescue him because he feels like God should know that he's in trouble. He's asking God to rescue him. This prayer is more for the preparation of his own heart, for God to help in whatever way possible. He's begging God to help him. Like, Look, God, no matter what you do, I'm going to trust you. And I think this begs a question that's kind of understood in this writing, but I think we have to ask. The real question is this, do we really want to be rescued? Do we actually want to be rescued from our cave? This is a very similar question that Jesus asked a lame man in John chapter 5 before he healed him. He said, do you really want to get well? Do you actually want to be rescued? I think it's a fair question to ask. I think some of us think we do, but really we don't. Because we don't know what that rescue is going to cost us, we want to control it with our narrative, our way. We want to do it the thing, and from our mind, not from God's perspective. Do we want to really be rescued by Him, or do we want to prove how strong we are, how much we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps? Do we want to prove our own holiness and power, or do we really want to be rescued by Him? Because if we cry for rescue, no longer is in our hands; it's fully in His. Are we really ready to do that? David was. Let's see what happens in verse 5. I cry to you, Lord. I say to you, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. So he goes through the problem. He prays the prayer because he understands who God is. He understands who God is because God is his portion. So this is what the portion is. and really wanted to call it the refuge. I like that word better, but it wasn't a P for alliteration. So I had to stick with the P. It says the portion, God is our refuge and he is our life. The reason why David brought his problem to God, the reason why David brought his prayer to God, is he understood who God was. He understood that God was indeed enough and actually God would go above and beyond what David actually even realized he needed. And I want to put this into perspective to see who God is. And I shared this quote from Brother Lawrence a few weeks ago as we started the psalm series. I wanted to come back to it, um, one, because it uses some graphic language in it, um, but it gives us really a picture of who God is. And as you read this, remember, this is from a 16th-century French monk. So just putting that into perspective, this is what he shares about the goodness of God. He said, I found myself attached to God with greater sweetness and delight than an infant suckling at his mother's breast which is always weird to read, especially from a French monk. I have at times such delicious thoughts on God that I'm ashamed to mention them. Now, this comes from a book called Practicing the Presence of God, which you can read in like 11 minutes. But really, this is the heart of a guy who loves the Lord. This is the heart of a guy who would be able to navigate anything in life because he knows how good God is. That is the place that David was at. That no matter what you do, how you do it, Lord. I'm trusting myself to you. But someone I think puts it even better is a guy named Jonathan Edwards. He's a preacher um, from a couple centuries ago. Um, He had an attitude, but he was still really good, and he put things in a great way. I want you to to read this quote, and it's a long one. It's going to be two and a half slides, so just bear with me. This is the way he put it. It So God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven Fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. Now listen closely to these next, these next lines This is beautiful. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Therefore, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey towards heaven, as it becomes us to make the seeking of our highest end and proper good, the whole work of our lives to which we subordinate all other concerns of life. Look at this question. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? What is, he, what is he saying? Are things of this earth good? Absolutely. Is being married to your best friend good? Absolutely. Is having a kid man, that looks like you, and acts just like you, is that good? Absolutely. But what is even better? Our God. Those are but drops compared to the ocean. And it's when we see him as our portion, as we see him as enough, as we see him as sufficient and life-giving, but also intimate and close, when we see him as that, that is when it is enough. want you think about it in the context of marriage, God gave us the beautiful gift of marriage and in our spouse, we see by the gifting of God, they meet every bit of our need that we need from another person as far as relational intimacy goes. Physical, spiritual, mental, God has given that as a gift, but the moment we step out of that sanctity of marriage to seek those needs somewhere else, not only have we broken that intimacy, But we have also allowed that relationship to be broken and them never to be able to meet those needs fully again. And when it comes to God, the moment we begin to look for what only He can offer somewhere else, we have broken that intimacy. Not only will we not find it there, but that relationship with Him has now been broken. You have to understand, He is the only one that can bring that healing. He's the only one that can bring that life. He's the only one that can help us navigate all of those things. A great place that we see this is actually in Daniel chapter 3. This is a book we went through a few months ago, actually, last summer. Um, and it tells a story, not just a guy named Daniel who was in captivity um, whenever they were all in prison from the king of Babylon, but also um, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and a billy goat. Um, he actually had these three friends that were really, really, man, had strong faith. But they were threatened that, hey, if you don't bow down and worship the king, We're going to throw you into a fire. We're going to throw you into this big, huge furnace, which is a green egg before green eggs were cool. And we're going to put you to death. And I want you to see what they said to King Nebuchadnezzar. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. He is our portion. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. He is our refuge. But then look at this little phrase. To me, it's one of the biggest phrases of faith in the whole entire scriptures. But even if he does not. How many of us can say that? But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set but even if he does not. That's what it looks like, guys, for God to be our portion. Our bets aren't hedged on anything else in life. When we're in the cave, no matter what our cave is, we're not holding on to God's rope and then hoping someone else throws another rope. If it's better, we're going to go to it. No, it is fully being dependent upon him. I want to ask you, is he enough? If he doesn't do things your way, is he enough? If he isn't as fast as you want him to be, Is he enough? If he doesn't act the way that you would if you were God, is he enough? And the way you answer that question, even if you don't, will let you know, is he my portion or is he not? Let's look at verse 7. Set me free from prison, that I may praise your name, then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. So what is the fourth P? And to me, this is the hard one. It's this, it's praise. The praise is this, that God is our deliverance and he deserves our praise. That God is our deliverance and he deserves our praise. Now, I want you to see this though. Was David praying for deliverance? Absolutely. Was he wanting to get the heck up out of the cave? Absolutely. But what was his primary reason for praying? It wasn't that he would be rescued. It was for the glory of God to be put on display. Is there anything wrong with us praying to be rescued out of the cave? Absolutely not. Is there anything wrong with being, for praying for the cancer to be removed, for a kid to begin to behave, for us to get a job? There's nothing wrong with us praying for that, but our primary focus should not be on our benefit, but on His glory. That's the reason why David prayed the way he did, and that's the reason why David could praise no matter what happened, that he was going to trust that God is my portion, and He is enough, and He deserves my praise. And whenever David began to have... That mindset, not only was he delivered, not only was he saved, not only was he able to see the glory of God and begin to praise, but the people around him began to praise. He knew that either the 400 people that were there currently with him or that were coming would listen to David. They would listen to what God had done, and he would be able to point and say, this is who did it. But it wasn't just David. It wasn't just the men after God's own heart. It was also Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look at verse 28 in chapter 3 of Daniel. And this is after they went into the fire, threw him, and even the people that threw him in ended up dying. It was so hot. And it wasn't just three people in the fire. It turned into be four. And I'm not good at math, but three, then all of a sudden it become four unless God does something. Look at Nebuchadnezzar's, the king of Babylon's response. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had sent his angel, which we believe is Christ, and we walked through that a few months ago, and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command. And they were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. I want to ask you, just based off of faith, would you be willing to defy the king? I'm talking about just a a ruler in person here on this earth. Would you be willing to defy the king of culture, the king of self-serving, the king of selfishness, the king of self? Would you be willing to defy it and give up your life just because God is who he said he is? But it gets even better. Look at verse 29. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Now, you got to love the message. You might not love the method because, I mean, we're not going to sit here and say, praise God. And if you don't, we're going to burn your ass down, chop you into pieces, and serve you a sushi. Like, that's not what we need to be doing. Nebuchadnezzar was brand new to this faith thing. But what do you see? It wasn't just Chattering Me, and Abednego to praise God. It wasn't just the people of Israel. It wasn't just Nebuchadnezzar. The whole nation began to declare the glory of God, which shows us, guys, we have no idea what hangs in the balance of our response and faith in the cave. We have no idea what hangs in the balance of us saying, God, you are my portion. God, this is my problem. It's so much bigger than me. We have no idea what hangs in the balance of us saying, God, you are enough. Is it us seeing the glory of God in our own life? Absolutely. But it is so much bigger. Guys, we have to understand the darkness of the cave isn't just something we can't avoid in life. It is absolutely necessary for us to become the Christ follower God wants us to be. The cave is a breeding ground for prayer, for faith, and ultimately Christ-likeness. And that breeding ground for faith and becoming more like Jesus is something that becomes a megaphone when the world begins to see God's glory. We have no idea what hangs in the balance of the decision to trust God no matter what. I want to be clear. Guys, the wilderness does not mean an absence of God. Falling down on our knees is not mean to have God, because the true rescue is realizing God has been there the whole entire time. So what is the bottom line for Psalm 142? I'd say it this way. The darkness should drive us deeper into prayer and ultimately deeper into God's presence. And that's recognizing He never left us. He's never forsaken us. He never went somewhere else. He never took a potty break. He never said, you know what? I'll get back to them eventually. He has never left us. And if we begin to realize that, we begin to see our portion has always been there. Our deliverance has always been there. His glory has always been there. And now I can declare it by believing Him and trusting Him as my Savior. He is my portion. He is is enough. And even if he doesn't do things the way that I think he should do things, that's okay. Because he's the one that's in control. I'm going to ask you to bow your head this morning. i like to give you time to just to reflect on what we've said. Normally i like to give you time just to close your eyes as the band makes their way up and all those things. But today I want to do it a little bit differently. I want you to think through the places in Scripture we see God use the wilderness. And really, I want you to think through the time that Christ went into the wilderness. Because before he even started his ministry, Jesus went into the wilderness to prepare. And the way he did that was through temptation. And he had been there fasting for 40 days and he was absolutely starving and hungry. And the enemy, Satan, said, here, here's these rocks. I mean, you're God. Why don't you just turn them into bread? And Jesus responded with the Lord. I mean, the man does not live on bread alone, but living on the word of God. So he chose then not to take a shortcut, Not to bypass God's plan, but to trust in the Lord, even though he was literally starving to death. And then the enemy would take him up on a high mountain peak and said, look, I'm going to give you all of this. Just let us be partners. And Jesus is like, look, one, that's not for you to give. And then two, it's my father's. And three, if I do his will, I will inherit this already again. Not shortcutting, not bypassing, letting the cave do the work. And lastly, the enemy says, look, why don't you throw yourself off and force God's hand to send angels to save you so people would know who you are. Jesus is like, no, it's not, it's not my job to put God to the test. I'm going to trust his work. And because Jesus spent time in the wilderness, he was prepared not just for his ministry, but he was prepared when the crucifixion came. He was prepared the night before he was arrested to pray, Father, I, I know what's coming, <laughs> I know I'm about to become darkness. I know I'm about to become the whole sin of this world. I know I'm about to endure your wrath. If there's another way, would love for you to do it with those famous words, but even if you don't, not my will, but yours be done. And because of that, because of the resurrection, we all now can have faith in our God. So I want to ask you, what story do you want to tell? What story do you want your life to tell? Do you want it to be a story about you, how you manned up, you womaned up, you it up, you bucked up, you made it through? Do you want it to be a story of just pity, of people just and worshiping and praising you because of how tough your life is in the cave? Or do you want it to be a, about a story about something and someone that is so much bigger than you? where you cease to be the main character, where you cease to be the hero, and you realize your small story is a part of a greater story of a God who has never left you, never forsaken you, and gave up everything for you. What story do you want to tell? Because if we begin to see our cave as a preparation ground, we begin to see and experience the glory of God in the here and the now, but we begin able to look and lift our eyes above the clouds, above the fog, above the rut, And we begin to see what is to come. And that is the absolute majesty of the kingdom of God. So are we immediately going to be ripped from the cave? Maybe. David wasn't. He was there for another decade. But what did David experience? He experiences his king in the here and the now. Because no matter how deep our cave is, no matter how hot hot our fire is, there is another one in the midst of it with us. And his name is Jesus. Father, we thank you that you're with us. And God, as much as we would love to never have to experience the cave, never experience the fire, never experience the wilderness, God, we know that your ways are higher than ours, and we're going to trust you that you never leave us, nor forsake us. You're always there with us. And God, we're going to say that you're enough. You're enough to meet our every need. You're enough to heal every wound. You're enough to help us navigate through whatever we might be walking through in life. But ultimately, God, you're enough for us to praise. You're enough for us to fall down and lift our hands and say, Lord, rescue us. But even if you don't, my hope is in and my praise is to you alone. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To close out today and our, our first little mini series through Psalms on Lament, we're going to sing a song that was born out of the passage of Daniel chapter 3 Um, that sings of um, another in the fire because they went in as three and while they were there, there was four. The Son of God was revealed to be there with them in the pain. So guys, I don't know what your cave is. I don't know what your fire is. I don't know what your wilderness is. You are not alone. Your portion has never left you. Your portion will never leave you. And he is there with more than you can ever imagine. So if y'all would stand with me as we sing this closing song, Another in the Fire. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.